thank you. We're gonna get started rather quickly here because we had some AV issues. I apologize for the delayed start, but I have to hand it to the Rockstar team here at UTD and my Rockstar staff. Thank you so much. You know, it's it's like show business. The show must go on and we did what we needed to do to, get, to make it work. But thank you for joining us. My name is Liz Brailsford. I'm World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth President and CEO. Happy to see all of you. And we are here for a very special program this evening. We are partnering for our 22, uh, 2022 Raytheon panel with our board member Mike Caps here. Thank you very much. And we have a special group, uh, our panelists this evening for the future of war fighting is Michelle Flournoy, Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, and Rear Admiral Norman Hayes. I will mention that uh, Ms. Flournoy will be joining us virtually as she has broken her ankle and cannot travel. And so we are uh, with her, she's with us in spirit and this is gonna be a great conversation. But uh, it also will be moderated by Michael Caps, who I just mentioned, he's our board member. He's with Raytheon, our fabulous partner. He is the Director of Strategic Development, Intelligence, Information, and Services at Raytheon. So thank you again. So, uh, I also would like to extend a huge thank you to the University of Texas at Dallas and the Naveen Jindal School of Management for partnering and hostess hosting here this evening. It's a pleasure to be back, and we also have uh, our, uh, our board member, Diane, thank you very much, Diane McNulty from UTD. And then I also want to thank the council's institutional members, the NEC Corporation of America and Lockheed Martin as well. And I'd like to give special recognition to American Airlines, our partner, for helping us bring these wonderful speakers to us today. So uh, I usually talk about a couple of programs. I'm not gonna do that tonight because we're starting late and I wanna be sensitive to your time, but do go to our website at dfwworld.org to see all of our programs and membership information. We'd love to have you join us at a future program and as a member. And so with that, uh, I just wanna remind you to silence your cell phones and devices, please. And we will get started. And so I am now pleased to uh, introduce Diane McNulty. Like I mentioned, she is on our board. We are lucky to have her. She is the Associate Dean at the Naveen Jindal School of Management, University of Texas at Dallas. Diane is an excellent friend of mine. And uh, yes, and I welcome her here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz, and welcome to everyone. Good evening. I apologize for the technical difficulties, but want to welcome you to our school and to the University of Texas at Dallas. Now, I am pleased to introduce our moderator for the evening. Michael Caps is the Senior Director for Global Strategy for Raytheon Intelligence and Space. Um, Mr. Caps has been a strategy executive in defense and intelligence uh, areas for over 30 years, and he is currently on the board of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the Image Journal. And we are looking forward to his moderation of this distinguished panel this evening. Thank you. 
So thank you, Diane. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, this evening Michelle Flournoy, uh, who will be appearing on the screen here. Uh, she is currently the managing partner of West Exec Advisors and a former co-founder and chief executive officer of the Center for New American Security. Michelle served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2009 to 2012. In this capacity, she was the principal advisor to the Secretary of Defense in the formulation of national security and defense policy, oversight of military plans and operations and the National Security Council deliberations. Our next distinguished guest is U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan. Jack retired in 2020 after a 36-year military career. His final assignment, as many of us know, was the inaugural director of the U.S. Department of Defense Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. He was responsible for accelerating the delivery of AI-enabled capabilities to expand the joint force advantages and as director of the algorithmic warfare cross-functional team, which is often known as Project Maven. Jack established and led DOD's Pathfinder program, fielding program changes and bringing AI capabilities to intelligence collection and analysis. And then finally, I welcome Rear Admiral Norman Hayes, who's currently the Professor of Cybersecurity Studies at George Washington University and CEO of Deep Futures Consulting. Before retiring, following a 31-year naval intelligence career, Hayes was the first naval intelligence officer to be director of intelligence for the United States European Command. His efforts resulted in the expansion of permanent military intelligence cooperation with NATO and non-NATO nations that was unprecedented, unprecedented pardon me, in his scope. He also served as the director of National Security Operations Center at the NSA and as a senior member of the Executive Council in the formation of United States Cyber Command. So please join me in welcoming this expert panel to the stage. So most people on a Monday night are not thinking about what the future of warfare is going to be like, but we're glad that um, there are people who that's their job and they're thinking about that. So our overall plan tonight, I think, is to talk about when we step into the future, what do we see about the future of war fighting? And then I think we'll talk a little bit maybe about some of the lessons learned from Ukraine um, and what we might do, what we've learned, and what have our adversaries learned about uh, that engagement that might, might impact our plans going forward. So I'm gonna start off with a question to the whole panel, uh, and we'll start with Ms. Flournoy. Uh, is what characterizes future conflicts? If you look ahead, what's going to be different? What is going to be the same? Well, it's great to be with you, at least virtually. I'm sorry, I can't be there in person. Um, but when I think about the future of warfare, I'm, I, you have to recognize that we're at a profound inflection point in the geostrategic environment where we're moving from a period where we were really focused on non-state actors and threats like terrorism, um, dealing with wars of counterinsurgency and so forth, to really a time when we have, we'll have near-peer competitors, whether it's a declining but 
revisionist Russia, as we're seeing their aggression in Ukraine, or a rising and increasingly powerful and coercive China under Xi Jinping. And so that means that for the first time in a very long time, really since the Cold War, um, we're, we're going to have to try to deter and prevent and if necessarily be prepared for conflict with a near peer. Um, and that means you know, a much more sophisticated uh, and challenging environment where um, it'll be a more lethal environment with greater speed of operations um, and multi-domain. So not just thinking about undersea, on the sea, land, air, but also domains like cyberspace and space. So this is a moment when we really have to challenge ourselves to rethink what we think we know, um, to really think about new operational concepts. And at a time of great technological disruption, how do we leverage some of those new technologies to give us an edge, first and foremost, to deter and prevent conflict in the first place? Thank you, same, same question, General. War is the ultimate human endeavor, so what will not change is human nature. War is always going to be about fear, honor, culture, and interest, and we can not expect that to change anytime soon. What will change is the character of warfare. Everything Michelle just said, all I'll say is I echo what her comments were, but I'll add a little bit more to it. We're going to see changes in the character of warfare. What I mean by that is how we fight, what we fight with, the operating concepts, what we do with the technology in a way that will surprise us over the next decade, and maybe even sooner than that, over the next five years. We're seeing just the precursor, the harbinger of these changes in what's happening in Ukraine today. As Michelle said, we've spent the last really 30 years in a kind of fight in the Middle East, a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, we are now facing a peer competitor in the form of China. No doubt about it, it's a peer competitor. That is a different kind of fight. We are in a state of persistent conflict right now. You can say hybrid warfare, you can say gray zone. I say conflict. It's a conflict in information operations. It's a conflict in cyberspace. And I think you could make a case that maybe it's a little bit of a conflict in space right now today. We also face the threat of nuclear conflict that we have not faced since the height of the Cold War. That is a frightening proposition, and we have to be ready for a very different type of fight than we've seen in the last 30 years. But the nature of it is not going to change. The character is going to change dramatically, exponentially, and it's going to bring in new technologies, which I know is part of the discussions we're going to have here. Yeah, very much. Admiral, same question for you, sir. So I think that all of the reasonable parts of where we're going to be going in warfare in the future have been discussed. And so, but one that hasn't been. We talk about technology, we talk about the idea of who our enemies are going to be and what they present, but really what we need to start having is a change in the way that we think about warfare. I mean, real change, because the world is changing now, it's changing at an increasingly rapid pace, and old thinking doesn't help us. So right now, it was really a throwback in terms of this Ukraine campaign where all of a sudden, Russia wanted to take land. Well, land isn't something that you should want to own because it's expensive to own it. All right? And I don't care if you got a farm or you're trying to con con conquer a country. This is way back in the 1200s, you know? 
And it was almost sort of like, uh, from the Ukraine perspective, as this is a person who said, I got to use this army I got. You know, I got to use it, so I'm going to go out and pillage and rape and murder, literally. That's not what the new order is about, because nobody wants the land. Nobody wants Russia. So the idea is now we need to think differently. We have to think about how are we going to fight battles where the rapidity, the mobility, the accuracy, and the lethality in those battles, if they have to be fought, has to be overwhelming so that they don't continue for years and years and years because we just don't have the money, honestly, the money to be able to fight those kinds of battles anymore. And we have to think differently as uh, in any conflict that we go in, how are we going to do what we have to do if it's necessary to do that? I'm not a person who likes to go to war. I've been there. But if we do have to go, we have to understand more fully what we want that outcome to be, achieve that outcome, and then move on because we can't stay around. And remember this very important point. If you conquer it, you own it, all right? Always remember that point. It's very, very important. And, and I'm, so <coughs> I know you said we could sometimes segue off yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah. And, and I'm going to do this. Michelle and I have been in these conversations together. We would all love to believe that future conflicts will have this short, sharp shock to bring in a little Pink Floyd here. I think what we could expect is protracted conflicts with a peer competitor. Is our industrial base, is our national industrial base prepared for a protracted conflict? My answer to that question right now is that we're probably not. What would it take to be ready for that protracted conflict? What does it look like with commercial tech companies? Are they really the Ford Motor Companies of the 1940s that produce bombers by the minute out of the big plants in Detroit or in, uh, Nebraska, where I was stationed for a while? Um, are they going to be supporting the United States government in this? We have to be prepared for a future conflict that might not end in the first 30 days, might not end in the first 60 days, might not end in the first year. We're seeing this with Ukraine. We had this conversation in the car on the way over. We all, some of us, myself, I would put in this category, thought this would be over quickly because they'd be in Kyiv. We're now looking at a protracted conflict through the winter. So these are things we have to think very hard about, is what does the national industrial base look like? So for those of us that watch the, the DOD budgets. We see procurement budgets going down. We see RDT&E modernization and research and development budgets going up, which is a signal that we're going to be buying different kinds of things uh, to go to war with. What, what is going to be different in terms of the systems and the platforms and the capabilities uh, that we'll need for the future conflict that are different from today? So we'll go back to Ms. Flournoy for this first honors here. The military equipment, the major platforms we buy, we expect them uh, to last for you know, 30, 40 years. So many of the platforms that we have in the force today and that we are currently buying will be with us for a very long time. The name of the game, in my view, is how do you augment those platforms with new technologies and capabilities and concepts that buy back their relevance? So for example, um, you know, we have lots of aircraft carriers and we've invested a lot in them, but the aircraft on those carriers over time have become of lesser and lesser and lesser range. And so now you have a problem that if we were in a conflict with China, the, the, the aircraft have to be, 
inside basically the Chinese threat ring to be able to to operate effectively against their their to do their missions. And so the question of how do you buy back range? Um, and there's a, you know all kinds of different ways to approach that. Um, but we really have to think about this pairing of legacy platforms with new technologies. I think one of the concepts that I'm intrigued by, and I know Jack has worked a lot on this, is what you know is known as human machine teaming. So how do we um, allow a human operator to control dozens or hundreds of unmanned systems that greatly complicate an adversary's attack planning or ability to you know to function um, that that is one of the things how do we use um, AI to create a network of networks so that our command and control systems which will be under constant disruption and attack are resilient almost like an electrical grid that's always rerouting if there's a brownout or a you know a problem here or there it reroutes to keep the electricity on that's the kind of um, capability we need to invest in. But again, I want to underscore the most important point that the most important thing we need to do in the near to midterm is invest in the capabilities that will deter China from going to war in the first place, that will cause President Xi to doubt his ability to succeed, that will cause him to realize that um, the costs will be too great. Um, that is really the name of the game. And it's the same investments but we've got to make them on a much more rapid timeline to really affect that deterrence equation in the next, you know, five to seven years. Anything you gentlemen would like to add? I, 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 it's everything that Ms. Florian is saying is, is absolutely spot on. One of the, uh, one of the aspects of that is, is, is building to uh, and as we build these things, expensive how much a destroyer costs or how much an aircraft carrier costs or building a, 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 a jet fighter aircraft that over the long term, how many billions of dollars that costs, we have to build with the idea of upgrade and improvements in mind. You know, it, it, that has to be a key part of as we are working through the process of building a new plane or say we're going to do an aircraft carrier is how long can we keep this very expensive item flying appropriately by incorporating new technologies into it? Because I tell you, if I got a P-51 and it has laser beams on it, you know, I'm, 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 I'm killing everything in the sky, all right? <laughs> so the, that idea is, is relevant, it, it's real. And that is something that we have to continue to really think about how we want to be able to do that. And that will make a tremendous difference because that means that I can bolt on something to a current uh, platform and bring it into the 22nd century. And the only <clears throat> things, uh, what I want to reinforce what Michelle said, they're so important. The idea of, of legacy systems with cutting edge technologies integrated with them. There, there's a certain uh, camp that would say, let's just get rid of all legacy and jump into the future. One, it's not realistic, and two, we don't, we don't, have the, we don't know what the future looks like. There's a little bit of a gamble here. You never know what's going to happen around the corner. So the idea of taking these legacy systems, some of which are big, big <coughs> capital investments, and that may be fairly vulnerable unless you put some other cutting edge technologies. And the other thing she said, which, is, which I also could not agree more with is the idea of human machine teaming. How do we, 
how do we put humans and machines together in a different way that does the best of both, that optimizes the human piece, which is the cognition, which is reasoning, which is really hard thinking, and machines do what machines do best, which is go through enormous amounts of information, do it very quickly, and give you results. Those are two things we ought to thinking very much about the future fight. We're, as I said at the very beginning, we're seeing a little bit of a harbinger of what's going on in Ukraine. Think about the cost-kill ratio of an aircraft carrier versus a set of swarming drones. Let's say 100, 100 swarming drones with weapons on board. Ukraine's being incredibly innovative with some of their small tactical drones that are weaponized now. Imagine if you had 100, imagine if you had 1,000, imagine if you had 10,000 weaponized tactical drones going against an aircraft carrier battle group in the Pacific. That's a very real threat. So 999 get shot down, 10 don't. 10 may destroy the aircraft carrier. That's a pretty good cost for the adversary here as opposed to a, a couple of billion dollar aircraft carrier. So since we've rolled into that topic, let's, let's switch to, um, to Ukraine. Um, what lessons do you think the US and its allies and our adversaries for that matter are taking from Ukraine. Let's go back to Ms. Flournoy. Well, you have to believe that Xi Jinping is, is watching this with some sense of horror. Um, first of all, he's asking himself, wow, if Putin really was so ill-advised by his own national security team, um, they were so afraid to speak truth to power and question his planning, you know, can I trust my system to be honest with me. Um, that's lesson number one. And that's a problem for authoritarian systems that tend to punish dissent or naysayers. Um, number two is he's watching Putin's military fail on the battlefield. Um, and he has he, and the Chinese military is untested in con combat, the modern Chinese military. So he has to be wondering again, is my you know, how these guys look good on paper, but can they really conduct joint operations? Can they actually succeed in, in a combat situation? He's gotta be wondering about that. Third, he's watching the international community use economic instruments from sanctions to very biting export controls that have crippled Russian military industry. You know, and he's got to be asking himself, if I moved against Taiwan, you know, unprovoked or whatever the case may be, what kind of sanctions am I going to face? And what kind of economic warfare am I going to face? I'm a much more integrated economy. How would that work? And then I'd say the last thing he's got to be wondering about is the resistance of the, the population. Um, I don't think anybody expected the, well, I mean, certainly Russia didn't expect the Ukrainians to stand up and fight for their freedom and their homeland and their country. And she has to be wondering whether Taiwanese people who've grown up for decades now in a democracy would actually fight for that democracy and for their own way of life. So he's got a lot of questions on the table, which is a good thing because that contributes to deterrence, at least in the near term. Either of you gentlemen. Well, I think that the deterrence piece uh, that's spoken about ends up being probably the most important piece. And uh, Xi Jinping uh, is not an idiot, all right? First, first rule, I'm sure everybody knows this, never think that your enemy, your adversary, is an idiot, okay? Because you're going to surely lose. So 
He is not an idiot. He is, understands, he understands the capacity and capability of his country, he understands the capacity and capability of his armed forces. But his real goal, he keeps talking about Taiwan, but his real goal is how do I keep my country, my country, with him being the leader, and the things that he has to do as part of that. And one of the thought pieces that I know is going through his mind is, I've got to make sure that my economy stays viable. I've got to make sure that the people are happy. And I want to be able to be sure that if I do do something, that they will stand behind me. And not stand behind me with a gun, but stand behind me and say, you're doing a good job. And that is part and parcel of all of the pieces that he has to think about. And it is our responsibility to be able to ensure him that he doesn't ever get comfortable, regardless of whether the forces that we can present to him by making bold statements, a bold statement that President Biden made, hey, Taiwan, we're going to back you 100%. Doesn't need to, that, you don't need to say anything else. That is a deterrent in and of itself. All right, that stops all the planning. Wait a minute, guys, this guy just said, I'm going to try to protect them at all costs, essentially. That changes everything. And now I have to go back to it because I'm thinking that they may not want to do that. But now the leader of that country has said, oh, by one certain means, we actually mean that. We've said it for decades, and we are going to continue. So all of those things, all of the pieces, making him doubt that the people are going to support him, information operations and others along those lines, are very important in the world that we live in today. And we have to bring every piece of power, understanding, and knowledge of the adversary to bear, especially in situations like this. And the only things I'd add is I mentioned drones at the beginning, so innovative in the use of tactical drones. Uh, a couple of other areas, one logistics. Most Americans don't probably appreciate how good the United States has become at logistics over 30 years of fighting in conflict. It's incredible how good we are that it's assumed away. Russia has failed miserably at logistics. Getting from the last tactical mile back to Moscow is hard work. They've done miserable at it. Uh, Ukraine has a much different problem. They don't have to go very far. Information operations, already mentioned a little bit. Um, I tend to avoid using the term brilliant, but I would say Ukraine has been brilliant in information operations. Yes, yeah. they've, been, they've been winning the information war. If there is such a thing, they've been winning it. And then this, this last one is this idea of commercial technology integration in real time. There is an app that the government Ukraine has been, put out there, already had it in use. It is a secure app. Now, every citizen can use this app to do anything from report suspicious activity, report battle damage assessment, or even make recommended targeting solutions. All this information comes into the government. They use some kind of AI and machine learning to digest it, make recommendations, and act on that. That's done with commercial technology companies, with the government, probably with academics in there together. I heard a term just the other day. I'm going to plagiarize it ruthlessly because it's so interesting to me. They call this a digital levee en masse. Think about that, where every citizen in the country is now a sensor, a communicator, an information node. That could be good or that could be bad. If you're an authoritarian country, that's really bad. But in Ukraine, it's wonderful how well this has worked putting this all together. Digital levee en masse. I didn't know I would, I would use Napoleon quite in that way. In the, 2022, but um, I'm sold. I'm going to try to work that in something. <laughs> <laughs>
So we're going to go uh, out to the to the crowd here, and um, and just after one question, um, we often talk about the Department of Defense, but the intelligence community has to make adjustments too. And could would any of you like to talk to a few of the things you would see in terms of how the DoD and the IC? Uh, are going to change how they interact with each other or changes that the IC would, would make for the new realities as well? So uh, being uh, the, I guess, the primary intelligence person that's sitting up here on the stage, um, there are a, a whole plethora of different things that the DOD intelligence, the civilian intelligence agencies uh, probably need to start moving toward. Uh, and being more agile. They will say they're agile, and they are. I mean, it, it, as opposed to anybody else on this world, they are the, one of the most agile intelligence organizations and structures around. Um, but the, uh, the idea is, is that sometimes we look in the past too much, and we don't try to envision what the future is going to look like and what we are going to do to be able to uh, solve the future problems. And intelligence work in just basic form is prediction. What is going to happen? And that is extraordinarily hard. Sometimes we put up internal fences, which don't allow us to be able to get to the real answer. Uh, sometimes we not only put up a fence, but even inside the fence we have fences which stop others who would be, have brilliant ideas to be able to bring them forth. I understand why we do that. It's important that we have some of those securities and protections in place. But what we need to be able to do is to be able to get information and analysis from any potential source, be able to bring it in and give it to those individuals, uh, those professionals, and have them bring a solution out of it, conduct critical analysis, and, and say, what does the future look like? And then how does that affect us? Everything from our budget to what we're going to buy and then how we're going to use it. We used to do that really well. We sort of moved away from that, okay, especially when we got in the counterterrorism piece. And now we have to rebuild that structure because it was all torn up. And by being able to do that, intelligence needs to have the primary impact on what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, and how we're going to get it done. And, and I say that not because I'm an intelligence professional. I say it for this single reason. The intelligence community is the only community that sees the total picture. They have to know operations, right? They have to understand cyber. They have to understand the budget, because they have a budget and they're trying to get money just like everybody else. All of those things are encompassed within the intelligence community. And by being, having that person that's looking across that wide span, then you can get very unique ideas. You can build unique capabilities. And the most important thing, you know what the enemy is thinking. 
Okay? And that is the key. <clears throat> Ms. Fornoy, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I would just add two, two points at the strategic level um, that I think we learned from Ukraine. One was the, the power of rapidly declassifying intelligence in some circumstances um, to deny the adversary the kind of information advantage. You know, Putin was spinning a story about how Ukraine was provoking this conflict or causing this war. And it was the US rapidly declassifying intelligence about Putin's invasion planning that really denied him that predicate, that denied his ability to, to, to have that false narrative take hold. Um, I think the second thing is the, the, our ability to um, much more rapidly share information with our allies and coalition partners across NATO and, and in Ukraine has really been a huge source of advantage and something that is essential. I mean, um, it, you can't imagine a future conflict where we're fighting by ourselves. We're always one of our tremendous sources of strategic advantage as a country is having allies who will be alongside us, but we've got to be able to rapidly share that information with them and innate, to enable them to be effective with us. So I think those are two additional intelligence lessons I would add to what's already been said. You know, what a, if I may add, and, and Michelle, you're, you're so dead on on that last point. Um, when I was in Afghanistan, my intelligence organization that I had uh, was built upon, you know, U.S. forces, Australian forces, New Zealand forces, the Brits were there, and I had all of that. And one of the things that was most important is to be able to share the information between ourselves, because everybody's operating on the same watch floor, if you want to look at it. We're in the same spaces. And you have to get past, in, especially in times of war, you got to get past this whole idea that, hey, I, I can't share with the UK on something. You know, I can't share with the French on something. I can't share. No, we're in battle. The most important thing at that particular point in time is how fast can I get the information to them? How much can I do to support them? As opposed to I've got to hold this back. Because what's the most important thing? Life. And you want to save as many lives as you possibly can. And I, frankly, when it comes to life, it doesn't make any difference whether US or UK or French or whatever. Life is life is life. And your responsibility is to say, hey, look, we need to be able to do the right thing, and we need to do it now. Thank you. So we have about 10 minutes left. So I think, as is our custom, we'll take a few questions. Um, and I think somebody has microphones. Yeah. Check the bottom. Okay. Um, so the question, uh, I think the general talked about our uh, supply lines being critical in a protracted contract uh, co conflict. One of the things that's going on right now is is uh, reshoring, the big reshoring movement. But before that, I mean, we had so much of our production go overseas into our adversaries country. Mm -hmm. So I want to sort of ask the question, and I think this is where we're all kind of involved in the future of warfare, because um, 
in the gray zone, China is stealing intellectual property, but they're also trying to consolidate and be able to build more things without us decouple on their side. So I want you to talk a little bit about, from an industry standpoint, what can we do, everything from CFIUS reforms to, you know, what can our commercial or dual-use types of companies do um, differently um, to just avoid China's constantly predatory and adapting practices? Right. Uh, let, me, let me start with that. Um, I'm sure Michelle has some thoughts on that as well and Norm. For all the bad things that happened with COVID, there is one thing that happened during COVID that turned out to be beneficial, is to understand our supply chain vulnerabilities. And we found them very quickly that that part is only made where, and they're now holding it hostage. This idea of weaponized interdependence, right. that is a term that didn't mean a lot to people five years ago, it means a whole lot today. The problem is that supply chains have become so extraordinarily complex. One, just to map out a supply chain is hard to do, but then to decide, are you really capable of bringing that back to the United States? Let's face it, we've spent the last, well, let's just say 20 years, where the, the, the bottom line was driving everything. Cheap, 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 and that's okay. That's capitalism at its finest, I get that. But can you afford to do that where those parts are being made in a country that could then weaponize that and hold you hostage? I'll tell you the, the classic example, because I did a research paper on this a year ago, is on rare earth minerals. Nobody understands that rare earth minerals drive so much of clean energy, weapons, sensors, platforms, and so on. China has 85% of the raw materials. They have 95% of the processing. That's a supply chain vulnerability we ought to be thinking a lot about. So these are gonna be big national decisions. We've avoided like the plague the term industrial policy for a long time. I think we ought to have a very serious conversation about industrial policy again. Are we serious about national security in a way that we're gonna to have to make hard decisions? Not to pick winners and losers of individual companies. I think that's just, that's wrong. We, we don't wanna do that. But the, the idea of if rare earth minerals are so important to us, there is a policy to say we're gonna do the following things, which means doing maybe some environmentally less friendly things in the United States to reopen Mountain Pass, where all this was done in 1985. It's not done anymore because of environmental problems. This is gonna take a while to work our way through. What we saw in the last week, these export controls, is a first very, very strong salvo to China, saying you're not gonna get access to the most important semiconductor design, design architectures, the semiconductors themselves, and the fabrication equipment. How well can we do that? It will remain to be seen. And are there some unintended consequences? There yes. probably will be. But these are conversations we will have to do with every single critical weapon system or just industrial capability in the United States. You know, I, I remember um, when um, the, the last uh, um, Silicon Foundry was done here. I was working at all places NSA at the time, and they were, and uh, General Alexander was, you know, jumping them down, yelling and screaming, and says, "No, we we don't have to do it. If, if the government has to buy that, then government should buy it and make sure that we have that capacity and capability to be able to make sure that we can continue to build our own platters, all right? And the platter is, you know, uh, IC, uh, integrated uh, chip, and the technologies that go along with it." And, uh, and we decided, no, that's not gonna be because it wasn't cost effective, and so we let it go. Global went away. And, uh, and that's the difference in, of our future that you're talking about, is that is it, should the government do that? 
can the government say, hey, I'm going to have a quasi-company, a quasi-governmental company, so that I can ensure that we continue to be able to build and have the capacity and manufacturing capacity to be able to do this? Now, for me, I say this is a very simple answer. Of course we're going to do that. I know it becomes political, it becomes financial, it becomes commercial, but the idea is we have to start thinking that way, and until we start thinking that way and then come up with the best answer, uh, then we're going to be left out. Absolutely. Ms. Flournoy, anything to add? And yeah, I mean, this is a really hard problem because we spent the last four decades you know, moving towards a more fully integrated global economy, including with, with China. Um, and now we, in, in any supply chains that touch national security, public health, key areas of technological competition, we've got to start, it's not a wholesale decoupling, but it is a disentangling selectively in key areas. Um, I think um, in addition to thinking about onshoring to the United States, we need to think about, again, leveraging our allies. There are many countries where it may not be affordable or possible to onshore everything back to the United States, but working with our NATO allies, working with our Southeast Asian partners. There may be others where we can move um, capacity from China to other places. Um, and we're seeing this already in, in areas like, you know, Vietnam or, or Mexico and so forth, along with the United States. Um, I do think we are going down the road of an industrial policy. We just had a bipartisan passage uh, which is rare these days of anything, but bipartisan passage of the CHIPS Act, which is basically um, making a, you know, putting U.S. government investment into incentivizing the U.S. private sac sector and actually others to build more chip um, design, fabrication, packaging <coughs> uh, facilities in the United States. So I don't think the government needs to start companies or pick winners and losers. The government needs to signal this is this technology matter. You know, it matters. This is a, an, a supply chain that is brittle, and that brittleness affects our national security. Therefore, we're going to put some government attention, focus, incentives, resources to draw the private sector to focus on building capacity and capability in that that area. Because ultimately, this is really about investing in the drivers of our own competitiveness here at home whether it's science and technology, research and development, higher education, STEM education, even smart immigration policy when you think about it. Half the Silicon Valley founders are either immigrants or first-generation Americans. We, our strength has always been attracting the best and brightest from around the world and getting them to make their home here, have their businesses here. We need to continue with that too. So this is a huge, um, challenge, but I think if we play our cards right, we, uh, we can, we can uh, certainly out-compete out the, uh, the challengers. So as we bring the panel in for a landing here, I think we have time for one more very brief question, so. Why can't we just take all the questions? Just one, take two. Great, thank you. When we talk about these problems, we seem to always lump Russia and China together as the enemies, and that's really tough enemies. Do you see any way we could break them apart? I mean, fighting two wars, East and two wars was always a hard problem, but is there any way that we could break Russia and China apart so we're not facing both of them? 
Well, Michelle oh. has studied this extensively <laughs> in her role as the yeah, Undersecretary of for Policy, have so I defer to her, yeah, of course. her on this. Michelle, were you able to hear the question? I heard the question. I didn't hear the comment. But I think, you know, um, Russia and China are odd bedfellows. Um, there's a history of mutual fear and distrust. I think, you know, we saw in the last Olympics this sort of marriage of convenience coming together and lots of fanfare about their cooperation. But we've also seen, I think, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Putin's sort of actions, she has taken some pains to distance himself, at least diplomatically and politically. Um, and, you know, the, the real, you know, they, they cooperate where they have common interests like energy. Um, but I think China's actually been quite careful not to violate the sanctions, not to violate export controls, not to supply military equipment that's going directly into Ukraine and so forth. So I do think um, there's no easy answer to your question, but you have exactly the right idea, which is we want to keep finding ways to sow distrust, to drive a wedge between them, to make it costly for China to support Russia and, and vice versa. Um, but it's, it's absolutely the right way to think about it. You know, um, Russia and China, uh, you know, China is a communist country. They, they say they're communist, so they, they move in that direction. So even though Russia, even though their long history said that they were a communist country, they, they were really never a communist country. They were an autocracy. Autocracy and with a single person in charge and then, you know, and you get to be in charge by killing the other person or getting rid of them uh, as part of it. So there was a, a very different, even in the political aspect of those two countries. And, and as, as Michelle said, this is a, a convenience of certain places where they could come together to be able to have this, this they're, they're sort of presenting that we're working together. But, you know, it, 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 in my travels that I, I've had an opportunity to be able to have there, there is no love loss, okay, between these two countries, all right? And, uh, and, but they do see themselves as an as a alternative to the United States and the West. So that's where they have sort of a, a, a linchpin that comes together between them and help them to be able to move uh, forward together. You know, but I, I, I would dare say if, if China thought that they could take over, you know, a third of Russia that's not occupied, all right, uh, because it would be a good thing, because Russia will never occupy it and they will never do anything with it, they just don't have the capacity, then they would do that if they could, thought they could get away with it, with, uh, with, with very little. Uh, they are not, you know, friends and buddies. All right, and they're less friends and buddies now since uh, I think they're less friends and buddies now since Ukraine uh, happened because uh, Xi Jinping was like, "Oh my God, what the heck are you doing?" All right, because immediately that has an impact on the Taiwan situation and how the world is going to look at it. <clears throat> so I think I have squeezed every moment. I enjoyed chatting with you guys beforehand. Thank you. So thank you, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.